<laughs> came out a bit wrong. There you go. But anyway, the Bible is full of wisdom, so we'll try and stick to the Bible's wisdom this evening. It's great to be with you. Um, I have spent most of the last two weeks with 650 bishops and their spouses, and uh, frankly, it's nice to be back. Uh, very nice to see you. But it's been a good time. We've had uh, some sensational uh, steps forward for SOMA, the little mission agency I help lead. We've got invitations to go to the Arctic, uh, to go to Polynesia, Melanesia, to go to uh, Myanmar, uh, to go to India, Pakistan, to go uh, across North Africa, lots in Southern Africa, lots in Central Africa, lots in Western Africa, come to think of it. Uh, pretty much most of the map has been filled in, none in the USA, but um, they've got quite a lot of churches there already. Uh, so it was, it was a rather exciting time. Uh, and I want to get into the talk tonight by talking about obedience, obedience. And I wondered if there were people who had a little story of obedience. And uh, while you think of one, uh, if there's one that you'd like to share, it might be a time when you obeyed God and you didn't necessarily want to, but you just went for it anyway. Could have been something at school, uh, something at work. Uh, I had just this funniest little moment uh, at Lambeth Conference. It's not a very heavy story. I was just wanted some Belgian buns from the co-op. And I got in there, and the stand where the Belgian buns is right by the sliding doors on your way in. And uh, there weren't any there. It was quite hot. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, no, they've run out. It was, it was at the University of Kent, so they were quite short stacks because normally there'd be loads of students there. Uh, and uh, I, I just felt like God say, no, just walk around. And uh, so I, like, walked around, missing my Belgian buns. And, uh, and then they said, look down. And there in the fridge compartment were two packs of Belgian buns. And it was, the reason I tell you, it's just a weird little story, but it really encouraged me because 80 missions coming in uh, for SOMA is well beyond our budget level uh, for the next however many years you put it into. It's, it's extraordinary opportunity. And just a lovely reminder from God that he can provide uh, for, for what we need. He knows what we need and can help us get there. Uh, another lovely little story from while we were there was of Greg Downs, who came and spoke as uh, one of James's friends. And uh, he just bumped into a 60-year-old old lady outside, the, not very old lady, a 60-year-old lady outside, <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> Sorry, I'm quite tired. Um, a 60-year-old young lady outside the cathedral uh, and got chatting to her and just asked her, would you like to know God? And, uh, and she turned out she was a sort of nominal Anglican, went a few times a year. Like, oh, would you like to pray to get to know? And there and then just pray with this lady. And she just uh, gave her life to Jesus. It's amazing how many people are just ready uh, to enter the kingdom of God, isn't it? Just lovely. And it might be that tonight's a good time for you to obey God and say, sorry for your sins. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. Uh, but I just, I, is, has anyone got a story of obeying God when they maybe didn't want to, uh, that they'd like to set up the evening with? A little bit of an opportunity. Uh, James, James has got one. Anyone else want to come? Sam's... Sam's Going like that over there. Come on in, Sam. You can come. You can come up first. Okay. Well, we'll bring James up first, then Sam afterwards. Go on in. So, a very quick one. Has anyone been to Lee Abbey? So it's a beautiful place down in Dorset, and no, Devon. Sorry, Devon. And I was there with, with my wife, and um, I was just there outside looking at the beautiful sunset, and it looked quite nice. And I really felt God say, "Go and stand up there next to that massive bush." And I was like, Lord, I kind of thought, that can't be God saying that. That's just weird. And so I didn't. And I sort of stood there for a while. And I was like, all right, I'll go and stand. So I walked all the way up and stood next to this bush. And as I turned around, I suddenly saw the sunset. And it was the 
perfect view of the sunset. And it was just beautiful. And then loads of other people came and stood in exactly the same spot to see this view. And we all took photos of it. It was just God sharing the view. Nice. Are you coming, Sam? You're right. Anyone else? We've got room for, for one more after Sam. So if, you, if you're coming, get, your, get yourself ready. Um, so this is, yeah, uh, I was praying for Zara. Um, and I don't normally get pictures. That's not something normally something I'm blessed with. Um, but suddenly this picture of a bird came into my mind. Um, and I didn't know what it meant, uh, and I asked what it meant, and I didn't really get a response. Um, but so I just said to Zara, does, does a bird on a windowsill mean anything to you? And it turned out that was an incredibly significant image from her, uh, for her. It was a, a real symbol of her mother for her. Uh, and so for Zara, it meant so much that I'd had that picture, and I could share that with her, and that it meant that she felt that God sort of knew her and was with her. Um, but I'd felt, I really hadn't wanted to share it, because I was like, it's a bird. What do I do with a bird? Uh, but so I was, I was really encouraged and glad that I did, um, because it meant so much for Zara. Amazing. Thank you very much. That's, that's lovely. Zara's here, so you can ask her about it if she's willing later. Anyone else, can, anyone else coming? We've we got one more. Mm, gosh, no, yeah, you would like, come on. Yeah, you go for it. Why not? So um, a few months ago, I felt the need to find somewhere quiet. Uh, Baggy always knows this story. Uh, to commune with, with the Almighty. And all the churches were shut, and I went to Westminster Abbey, and it was crowded with people, and I couldn't get in, and I didn't feel comfortable going in. And I, it was the evening, and I was wandering around here, and I thought, I wonder if this church would be open. And it was, and you guys were praying here, and Meg, Maggie welcomed me in. So I feel as though the reason I come here not every week. Most weeks is because I felt like I was drawn to this spot and this congregation at this moment, and I'm very grateful. Well, that's a lovely story as well. Thank you so much. Well, there you go. You're very welcome indeed. Isn't it wonderful how God leads us? But sometimes the way he leads us isn't as easy as others. It's not about finding a Belgian bun or seeing a sunset or even finding a, a lovely church community to be deeply welcomed into. It's not always even a, a prophetic picture for people, which you don't know if, which way it's going to go. <laughs> um, sometimes he tells you to do something really tough. Um, and in this passage, we've got uh, two groups of people being told to do something tough. So Jonah is told to do something he doesn't want to do, and it's not the first time he's been told. Uh, if you were here either of the last two weeks, you'll have picked up the story of Jonah being told to go to the, the, the city of Fish. That's uh, the translation of Nineveh, the city of fish. And he doesn't want to go there. And it sounds like, if you read the first two chapters, the reason he doesn't want to go there is they're a wicked, big, powerful place, and he's a bit scared of them. But once you've gotten to chapter four, you realize that's not actually the reason. The reason is because of what he knows about the character of God. That's why he doesn't want to go to fish. And the reason he doesn't want to go to fish is he's got a hunch that God might just forgive them if he goes and talks to them. And he really doesn't want them to be forgiven. Who, who was here when we did Luke 15, the prodigal son series, yeah? Week after week after week, we looked at that elder son attitude where you just are a bit fed up that someone's getting off scot-free, that God's grace is just too kind to them, yeah? Uh, do you remember the story Jesus tells of uh, people who work in the field and they agree a wage and they're, they're gonna get, let's say they're going to get paid 100 quid for, uh, for a day's hard, hard labor, 
Uh, and then people start at three o'clock in the afternoon and he says, I'll pay you a hundred quid as well. And then some people start at seven o'clock in the evening uh, just before uh, tools down and they get paid a hundred quid as well. And the people who've been working all day are like, oh, you've got a hundred quid. It's like, that was, that was a great wage for what you did. Uh, and the, the three o'clock, I only got a hundred quid, that was a great wage. Uh, and it's not fair. And it's so easy for us to get in a place where we're, it's not fair. And these people in Nineveh were people that Jonah was proper upset about. This is a little bit like, for those of you uh, watching or who have been to Iran or from Iran, it's a bit like walking into Tehran and going, repent, 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 into the religious authorities there. That's, that's how he feels about going into there. And so it is dangerous, it is scary, and yet his real big problem is the character of God. He just doesn't want God to forgive them. But he himself has this extraordinary encounter um, in the story that we've been looking at where he runs away from, from going to fish, going to Nineveh, and ends up being chucked into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. And it's supposed to be a play on words. It's supposed to be funny, uh, which then spits him up at the end of chapter two onto dry land after he's been in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights, which is supposed to remind you, even though it hasn't happened yet, of Jesus being in the grave for three days, three nights. Uh, Jesus himself calls his death and resurrection a sign of Jonah. So three days in the belly of the whale is the same as three days in that tomb uh, near Gethsemane. And after Jonah's salvation, he says these incredible words, what I have vowed, I will make good. And isn't that like the sort of thing you say at the end of every Christian festival or event you go to? <laughs> You're like, yes, last night, yes, God, whatever I said, I'm going to make good. And it's so easy in that moment to go, yes, I'm going to give up Netflix for the rest of the year. I'm going to get rid of Amazon Prime. I'm going to get rid of Disney Plus because, frankly, I finished it last week and there's nothing new on it anyway. And I can't keep bringing out characters that only appeared for three minutes in episode four and make them into a whole series. I'm going to get rid of Disney Plus. I'm going to get rid of the whole thing. Uh, and I'm just going to give time to you, Lord. <laughs> what I vowed, I'll make good. Uh, but... What you vow in an instant doesn't always work out over time. Who knows that to be a truth in their life? <laughs> what you vow in an instant doesn't always work out. And so Jonah has basically a message to take to the Ninevites. And, and he's, he's putting this into action. He is going to do what he's been told to do, but he's not going to do it with a great attitude. He's going to do it with that elder brother attitude. So he makes the quite harrowing journey to Nineveh. He's crossed a desert to get there. Probably taken him three days of walking to get there. And it's a three-day journey from the outsides of the city, from the hinterlands, from the, the slums of the city, to get to the middle of it. Um, to get right across it, rather. So a day and a half to get to the middle. He walks for a day. It's not a day and a half, he walks for a day. <laughs> so it's a bit like getting to, you know, Hammersmith and not quite having the guts to get into Westminster. <laughs> you know, you've walked in all the way past Heathrow, Hounslow, seen Chiswick on the way, gone, oh, that looks like a nice place, I wish I could stay there, and ended up in Hammersmith and gone, <laughs> that's a long journey. But along the way, he's been saying an eight-word message, at least in the English translation, and the eight-word message is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And you've got to imagine he's probably not just mumbling this under his breath, because it has a dramatic impact on him. It says the the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And then it says, his warning reached the king of Nineveh. So it makes it the extra half day. 
past however far he's journeyed. It reaches the king of Nineveh. He rises from his throne, took off his royal robes, covers himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issues this extraordinary decree that basically says you've all got to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the significance of the 40 days is worth just having a little moment of, of thought on. We, we talked about that this morning. Uh, it turns out I talked about it a lot when I preached on this in 2016 here, which you can find on our website, thanks to Joe Johnson's uh, great work. Uh, very helpful, Joe. And the significance of the 40-day thing is that's pretty much how long it takes to actually <laughs> turn your ways around. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of Lent is slightly bastardized in, in some church circles because on, on, in some people it's like, oh, you don't have to do it on a Sunday. But the idea of Lent, that 42-ish days of Lent, is that it's just enough time to break a habit that controls you. Who knows that sin can control you? You let it in and it gradually seems to get a hold on you. Funnily, some of the most spiritual uh, uh, um, literature and movies and things out there are, are the horror genre. Uh, at the moment, Stranger Things is the one that's been doing the rounds of of pretty much everyone under the age of, I don't know, 19 or something. There's like cult, cult viewing. And there's something about evil that we look at. You go, crikey, that really can get a grip on me. And you can see how when humans interact with evil, and uh, Stephen King's a master of telling these stories, it starts to consume them and consume them and consume them. And we can be so easily twisted by evil. And, and some of these writers have got more insight into it than and sometimes church people do. Um, you don't want to get stuck on their way of thinking, but if you, if you tease out what's, what's right in their thinking, you're like, well, crikey, yeah, evil can grip people. And we can get gripped by a way of doing something. We can get gripped by uh, a way of thinking about ourselves, a way of thinking about other people. You can get those negative thought patterns. I hate myself, I hate myself, I'm no good, I'm rubbish, I'm terrible. And it takes about 40 days to break the cycle of sin, or self-destruction, uh, and it takes that sort of consistent time to turn around. And repentance sometimes happens in a moment, but it's worked out over a period of time. So in Christian thought, this is a really good phrase worth learning. I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. All those three things are true of a Christian. I am saved. He has saved me. He's put a guarantee on my finger, an engagement ring, saying I'm going to be part of his bride forever. But I also am being saved. And it takes a deliberate walking out. And it takes about 40 days to break a, a destructive habit. I don't know if any of you have destructive habits uh, that you know are going on in your life. Um, you, sometimes you only realize they're destructive if you try and stop them. <laughs> And sometimes they can be perfectly good things, can't they? But they just sort of take over uh, our lives. They're often a twist of something good, something that we make into an idol. We make into a time chewer. We make into a, a God in our lives. Like Without that, who would I be? Like for many here, here in West London, it's, it's alcohol. Um, and so it just begins to get a grip and a hold on us until you're like, oh, crikey, <laughs> I just need a drink. And just that little phrase, I need, it's just a clue, isn't it, that something's gone awry there. <laughs> so God gives the Ninevites 40 days, uh, and he says, then you'll be overthrown. 
And what happens is they actually spend 40 days creating a new habit. Look at what they do. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat and drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. You see, right at the beginning of the book of Jonah, Jonah and God are both in agreement uh, that the great city of, of Nineveh has got so wicked that it needs preaching against. God's not in the business of leaving wickedness unchallenged. He doesn't want the world to become a horror story where evil reigns. No, there's a kingdom that he wants to bring, that he wants to reign. It's going to be utterly different to the horror story, which is when our hearts are gripped by us doing whatever I want to do, <laughs> my precious, in Tolkien's language. He wants to save us from ourselves. Because when we just do whatever I want, it ends up with a sort of wickedness that needs preaching against. But what Jonah wants to happen is he wants them just to be wiped out and destroyed. And God's prepared to do that. There are times through the Old Testament where God just says enough is enough. When the full measure of wickedness has risen up so much that people just will not repent. In a book of Romans, St. Paul talks about it, and he talks about how if we persist in doing evil, God hands us over to more evil, and then hands us over again, and then hands us over again. But God is also described as slow to anger and abounding in love. Slow to anger. He will get angry at sin. Thank goodness he gets angry at sin. Sin is a horrific thing that destroys the world, destroys us, uh, destroys environment, destroys creation, causes war, causes horror, causes malevolence, causes violence, hurts people. Thank goodness God gets angry at that. Thank goodness he can't tolerate it. But Jonah knew that this extraordinary God he served had a track record of being incredibly kind to people who, frankly, have never deserved it which is humanity in its totality. And so he preaches, you're going you're gonna to burn. And we'll find out next week, he basically gets angry and is frustrated because it doesn't pan out how he wants them to. Because God sees these people repenting and changing their ways, and he relents from bringing the judgment they deserve. And friends, we're all in a position of probably either being a Jonah or, or a Ninevite. Jonah, at the end of this book, ironically, the one who's obeyed God and seen probably the most effective sermon anyone has ever preached, <laughs> fulfilled. I mean, eight words and a whole city is saved. Jonah, who even when he gets chucked out of a boat by a ship captain, causes that guy to get saved as well in chapter one. Literally, everyone he touches in this book is saved, apart from possibly himself. 
because he's caught up in whatever pain and bitterness he's got against Nineveh. However they've hurt him in the past, however they've damaged him and his people in the past, he's caught up in his sense of having a right to judge them and condemn them. But he can't quite cope with the idea that God might want to save these incredible people from the city of fish. <laughs> he's so full of himself and his hurt, his pain, his righteousness, his self-satisfaction. And that he can't see that God wants to save these people. And in contrast, you've got this wicked bunch of Ninevites who have done evil, who when they're confronted by a call to repent, repent. You see, it's one of the reasons why the Christian church has to continue to let the world know that it needs to repent. We don't do anyone a favor by just going, it's all right, God loves you, don't worry. Because it's the repentance that triggers God's grace. Repentance is one of the great gifts in Christianity. Did you know that? Have you discovered that in your own life? I bet you have if you've tried to walk with God a little bit. Uh, in my early Christian life, I was almost addicted to repentance. <laughs> uh, let me explain that. I'd, I'd do a cycle. Uh, I'd go along thinking, oh, I'm quite good, like Jonah. And then I'd dramatically sin. And then I would get to the point where I just needed to repent, um, possibly because I was about to go and do something Christian. And I was like, oh, I'm not in a good place for this. I can't go and help in church or something, feeling like this. So I'd repent, and I'd have this like, ooh. And I was, it felt like a little emotional high. It's like, oh, this is nice. Um, and then I'd do the same thing. Oh, repent, hi. You, you could watch it for years in the Christian you've seen, seeing kids going off to Soul Survivor, and every year they repent and become a Christian again. <laughs> and you sort of get addicted to that. Oh, I've just repented. And the pastor took me aside. He said, um, can I borrow you, James? It's a slightly violent moment, but, um, you know. Um, he said, look, if you, if you come to God, and James can clearly represent God in this image. Um, do you know, he was wearing shorts and a clerical shirt this morning, and they were different colors. Um, so you're very, very smart. Anyway, that's, a, that's a, by the by. You can explain that later. Um, he said, if you, if you keep coming to God and you're like, sorry, 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 sorry. You know, the first couple of times you might go, go, bless you, my son, or whatever God says. Um, but... After a while, I might be like, you know, are you serious? <laughs> and that's why the 40-day thing is so important, where we actually really do turn away and forsake our wicked ways. <laughs> but repentance is just a, a gift because what you're doing is you're stacking up on your back sin, and it weighs you down, it consumes you, it distorts who you are. Uh, Pete Hughes calls it, it decreates you, sin decreates you from what you should be, and it weighs you down. And eventually, you might stagger to God, and you're like, God, forgive me. And when you mean it, and you're going to walk in the freedom, uh, he just sort of puts his hand on you, and the load comes off, and you're restored, and you're free. You know, if you're Jonah, you carry the rubbish around with you. But if you're the Ninevites and you're really prepared to repent, then you're free forever. It's, uh, thanks, buddy. It's why the Christian gospel is so amazing. Because you can be free from your sin because you repent. So let's never get to the place at Christ Church or any of the churches we go to where 
We don't offer people the beautiful gift of repentance, of turning from our wicked way. It sounds like it's a nicer gospel to just go, oh, you're loved as you are. But actually, God loves you enough not to leave you in a mess. He loves you enough to get you where you are or to woo you back to him, like the prodigal son came back. But he, he loves you enough to say, it's time to change. And it might take you a 40-day period to change. The Ninevites did that. And were, as far as we know, radically changed for that whole generation. So shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, I've never heard of a sermon more powerful than Jonah's one. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I guess that's because you convicted people's hearts and they realized it was true. And that it was worth fleeing the judgment to come. So I pray for all of us here watching online or here in this room that you will truly give us a desire to flee from the judgment we deserve, to trust you, to trust that that sign of Jonah will change us and restore us as we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, to repent of our wickedness and to live out freedom over not just a 40-day period, but over a lifetime. And I pray for anyone here who's just got caught in a sin or a bad habit or a bad way of thinking. I pray that you give them the grace to do a 40-day fast that breaks the stranglehold of that sin on their lives. Just probably there's a few of us who just know right now that we need help to have that stranglehold broken. I'm not going to ask you to... Um, to do anything embarrassing. If you know you're, you're going to need help from God to really repent and to turn from your wicked ways over 40 days and beyond, just say to God now, help me to repent. Help me to repent. Help me to change. God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. May he pardon and deliver you from all unrighteousness and break the power of cancelled sin over your life. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.